celebration and fun and lights and, and presents and everything else is the celebration that you would choose to be with us, the, um, the God who is with us, the with us God. And, and in the middle of all that, Father, and on this Sunday morning, um, even as it still feels like early fallout and, 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 and it makes it hard, I guess, in some ways for us to turn our emotions fully to this, we ask that you would, um, that you would give us the ability to see and to understand what it is that you not only did uh, all those centuries ago, what it is you're doing and what you're creating and what you're creating in these people and these men and women and these children and in all these things. Father, we're really grateful to worship you and to be a part of celebrating the advent of your son. Thank you. Amen. All right. Well, you may be seated. And uh, children, you can head off to Children's Church. It's very exciting. Very exciting things. Um, welcome to uh, the second week of Advent. We've got our, our Christmas trees up and... <coughs> We've got a cello player today, huh? Like this guy, yeah, so very exciting stuff. So, um, welcome. I'm Steve Risky. I'm, I'm the, uh, the teaching elder here, and I'm excited because for Christmas time, we have just a, a set of three different speakers. Bo is going to start this week, and Amy next week, and then I'll kind of close up on December 22nd, which is the day of hope. It's the first day where the days start to get longer. And, uh, um, in all of this, Merry Christmas to you. I want to inter uh, introduce my friend Bo. Um, Bo is, he's the principal over at uh, Bowling Green Christian Academy, and I've known him since he, sophomore? Uh, something like that. Something yeah. like that, yes. And I've got to witness. Both really, had more hair. We both had more hair, and uh, both had no gray in our beards at the time. Um, what's important, though, is I have less in my beard than Bo, so, you know. That, that is job. true. That is very true. Ooh. Um. Ha ha! Yes, I will conquer the music stand. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Um, I just want to open this up this morning. Uh, I have a scripture I want to read to you. It's going to be up there on the screen um, if you want to read it with me. It says this In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, amen to that, especially as Steve speaks of the uh, day on the 22nd where the days start to get longer. Um, I, I got to tell you, Brookside, um, I am standing up here on grace this morning, and I am A-okay with that. Um, of all the sermons um, that I've worked through um, to, to get to be up here and, and share with you guys, the prep for this one was by far the hardest. Um, and it wasn't because um, I didn't know what God would have me say. The, the passage was clear. The message was clear. It felt illuminated and like it was coming together. But at every turning point, as I sat down to prep and prepare and put things together, it just seemed like outside things were flying at me. Um, and so I'm going to go with this view on it this morning, and I think this is pretty accurate. Is there anybody out there that was uh, fans of the television show The West Wing? 
You guys know the West Wing? So there's like the ep, I see hands raised, I like that. Um, there, you know the episode where like President Bartlett is getting ready to go like give the debate of his presidential election, like make it or break it, and he's going to walk out and his wife just grabs a pair of scissors and cuts his tie off before he goes out on the stage and they gotta change it real fast and like the adrenaline is pumping. Well, that's what I felt like this morning as I had to go to three different locations to try and print my script. Every one of them failure. I came running in here. I literally gave Ricky like a thumb drive. Here's slides, go. Um, and, and then here I stand. So um, I, stand, I stand on grace and I'm excited about it because um, I think we find often that when we come up against stuff like that, it's because God's got something he really wants to say and, and do. So um, that's my story for you of getting here today. Um, but before I can go any further, um, I need to confess something else to all of you. I dislike the month of December. Um, to be more accurate, I dislike pretty much the entire winter season and all the months that go with it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did the guy who is kicking off the Advent-focused Christmas series at church just say that he dislikes the month that is all about Christmas? Well, yes. Yes, I did. Um, but let me reprieve myself with some clarity. I love Christmas. I am not a Grinch. I love Christmas trees, and I love gift giving. I love the Christmas spirit and Christmas food. I love the season of Advent in the church and the turning of our hearts and our minds to the true meaning of Christmas. And finally, there's one Christmas tradition which I love the most that even those who don't celebrate Christmas, I think, can get behind and enjoy, and that is the lights. I love Christmas lights. While there are many reasons that I love the Christmas light displays that we set up on our homes and in our cities, the main reason that I love Christmas lights so much are that they stand in the starkest contrast to the thing about the month of December that I dislike the most. And while I don't like snow and bitter cold really either, it's not those things. It's the darkness that makes me feel this way. The darkness of the winter months. I hate darkness and the lack of sun and daylight that comes with the winter. Like many of you, seasonal depression is not just a phrase for me, it's a real part of my life. I crave light. And whether you struggle with seasonal depression like I do or not, you were made to crave light as well. The absence of light, darkness, it's a terrible place to be. The darkness that affects us can take so many different forms. Some darkness is physical. Like in the winter, when the days are shorter and we're furthest from the sun, and our bodies, which need the sun's light, those sweet rays of vitamin D, lack it. Physical darkness, it's the absence of light around us. Some darkness is emotional, like when we feel distant or disconnected, fearful or numb. It's the absence of light in our minds. 
And then there's the worst kind of darkness, the one that makes me sick to my stomach, spiritual darkness. This darkness distorts our view of meaning, truth, self, and reality. It's the absence of light in our souls. At times, it can even be physically oppressive. It's the absence of truth, life, and light. Spiritual darkness. It's a terrible place to be. The thing that scares me the most about spending too much time in any kind of darkness is how we can become accustomed to it. That our bodies, our minds, and our souls in an unhealthy way can adapt to it. When the light shines in then, it's like we turn away from it because we've been in the dark too long. The very light which brings life becomes something that we want to hide from or that we want to avert our eyes to or that we want to run away because the darkness has become our reality. We fear what the light will bring. Darkness. It's a terrible place to be. That's why I'm thankful for the truth of John 1, 5 that I read when we started this morning, where John, describing the true light that gives life to men, says, the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, darkness is not natural to us. We were made to be in the light. More accurately, as John points out to us, we were made to be with the light. Darkness did not rear its ugly head until in Eden, when Adam and Eve believed the lie, which all who have followed them since have fallen prey to as well. The lie first whispers in our ears, and then it proclaims boldly, maybe we're better off without the light. Maybe we can be our own light. Maybe we can shine brighter and better. Maybe we can illuminate our own way. What Adam and Eve found out on that day in the garden is the reality which you and I have been born into. When we reject the true light John speaks of in his gospel, the one that gives life to men, all that is left is death and darkness. The utter absence of light and life. Thankfully, as I said earlier, there is grace. And thankfully, there is the hope of Christmas in the midst of the winter. A rescue and a redemption from the pitfall of Eden. The message of Christmas offers peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Again, in the very opening of his gospel, what does John tell us? but the darkness has not overcome it. He heralds the message that though we may turn from the light and choose our own way, just like Adam and Eve, this darkness of shame and death could not cast out the light, nor was the light willing to leave us alone when we turned our own way, hopeless, helpless, and without peace. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. The true light becomes flesh and enters into a dark world, taking on that darkness and fighting it off is a mission that some might deem impossible. While the action 
And the troops on the ground phase of this mission of light coming into darkness doesn't take flight until the time of John when Jesus steps out onto the stage, right? The planning and the preparation and the rising action of this mission was put into motion from the very moment that darkness and death were unleashed in this world. Then, even some 730 years before Jesus was born in a Bethlehem major, and add another 30 on to that before Jesus comes on the scene, promising that he gives life, that is the light of men, being baptized and saying he's come, that you might have it and have it to the fullest. The prophet Isaiah, all that time before, wrote to his people, Jesus' people, a hope of rescue from the death despair, and banishment into the darkness. In this particular prophecy that we're going to focus on today, Isaiah wrote one of the most recognizable verses of Scripture that we read at Christmas time. And it starts, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I bet more than half of you can finish that sentence. And then probably go on to add the names that that child will be called. It's so familiar to us. While this passage is that ingrained and familiar part of our Christmas celebrations, um, and it's a big piece of the tradition of even reading in the Advent season, I believe quite honestly that we've lost a deep understanding of why that is and the true impact and the meaning of those words in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and the names that follow it. While we are all here today, probably in some very real and frank sense, because going to church on Sunday is what we do, my hope for us this morning, Brookside, is that no matter for what reason you rose out of bed this morning and find yourself sitting here, that we can turn our hearts to adventing together and asking that God would speak and move as we dig deeper into this passage of Isaiah 9. So with that being said, would you guys just take a quick moment and pray with me? Um, Father God, um, as we look at Isaiah 9 together, Lord, um, for some of us, this is a passage we may have never seen before. The Old Testament may be a book that we've spent um, lots of time in, or no time in. And so God, regardless of where we may find ourselves sitting this morning, would you make the words of Isaiah come alive to us? Would your spirit move? And would God, you come alongside us as we seek, Lord, to look to you, to look to Christmas time and its meaning, and to prepare our hearts together as a church. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, Advent. I've used that term a couple of times. Steve mentioned it up here. Advent, this term may be familiar to you, or you may be hearing it for the first time today, but it simply means coming or arrival. It's a term we use in the church to describe the period of time, roughly between December 1st and December 24th, when we take the time to give intentional reflection to the way in which God came into the world. And in doing so, to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas Day and all that it means. A great many years after the fall of Eden and before the coming of Christ, as we said, the prophet Isaiah received a message of promise and hope from the Lord 
both for the deliverance from his present darkness, meaning the evil and ignorance and death that was taking place all around him and his people, and the broader spiritual darkness, which came with the fall and transcends geography and time and space. During Isaiah's lifetime, the kingdom of Israel, as it was under King David and King Solomon, was whole and full. But then the kingdom fell into a civil war. <laughs> Sorry, wrong civil war, meaning there was just some infighting between them. And basically, they split, go ahead, into two kingdoms. One kept the name of Israel and was known as the northern kingdom. And the other took on the name of its largest tribe, because you got to remember, Israel was made up of 12 tribes from 12 brothers, the descendants of Jacob, who's also known as Israel. And they took on the name of Judah, which was also the tribe of King David. And so, southern kingdom and northern kingdom split apart. Two separate kingdoms. So, even though the northern kingdom of Israel keeps the name Israel, ironically, it strayed the farthest from God the fastest. And then the southern kingdom, which took the name of Judah, also followed that path, but held on to the covenant ways for a little while longer. And that's what brings me to the worst part that I want to point out to you about this kingdom split. It's not just that this big united kingdom under Solomon and David was split into two and had been fighting with each other. It's that the people who agreed together to this covenant with God, to be a light to other nations, had fallen away from the covenant, had basically rejected God, and ushered darkness into a kingdom that was supposed to be a light. So we see the results of this darkness spreading into the northern kingdom when Isaiah writes in chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, which leads up to our passage in Isaiah 9, about what things are like in the land and in the day. Read it with me and listen closely because I think you're going to find that our present darkness is a whole lot like the present darkness of Isaiah's day. Isaiah writes this, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear, and he is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instructions among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead 
on behalf of the living. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? A people ensnared in the darkness of conspiracy, fear, brokenness, distress, and hunger. A people looking ignorantly and foolishly, as verse 19 says, to death for life. Now, this may cause you to think, but at least I don't seek mediums and spirits. But don't we? Where do you find your flesh longing to go for comfort? Where do you look to to get your life from? Does your flesh seek your hope and well-being in things that are not the Lord? The answer is yes. Doesn't every message around us tell us to look within ourselves and we can do it, essentially making us our own gods? We look at relationships and activities and money and government, and oftentimes we look to anywhere and everywhere but heaven to find our wholeness, happiness, and relief, and to try to see some light in darkness. We may not see it that way when it's happening, but that's what we do. And it is for us, as Isaiah warns Israel and Judah, when that happens, God will get our attention and he will become a rock that makes us stumble and fall. And so, just as Isaiah found himself nearly 3,000 years ago, we also live in a place where people look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and are thrust into utter darkness. The hearts of men long for peace and goodwill yet we look for it in all the wrong places. It's like the classic Christmas hymn said, our eyes were blind, we could not see. So praise God that the prophecy that Isaiah spoke did not end at verse 22. After setting the stage for the physical and spiritual darkness that's all around the people of Israel and Judah, Isaiah shares God's message of hope and promise and rescue. In the very opening next sentence and verse, he says, nevertheless. So join that back to that utter darkness. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
When I first started to read the book of Isaiah and to learn about the history of the nation of Israel, I had a chance to study the teachings of one of the greatest ancient historians and theologians of our time. I believe you pronounce his name Stefan Risque. Stefan? Oh! No, oh, no, Stephen Risky, got it. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm terrible with ancient names of old people <laughs> with no hair. Um, so, risque notes, <laughs> risky notes. When Isaiah issued this prophecy, the Assyrians had just deported the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is Galilee. Their darkness was grim, but one day the great light would appear in those very same shame-soaked lands. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the original 12 tribes we mentioned before, and they had become a part of the northern kingdom. And you can see them right up there. Naphtali's a little more bold. Zebulun's just below it, right in the middle, on the, in between Asher and Issachar. And they were the first lands to be conquered by the Assyrians, who were just over there to their north. And so, they were the first to experience the consequences of turning their backs on the Lord as the Assyrians began to invade. And you see, the Assyrians, who conquered them and eventually took the whole northern kingdom, did not practice the ways of other conquering ancient kingdoms you might be more familiar with, like Rome. The Romans, and Steve, this is going to make you shake your head a little bit, but I'm giving you like the short, short version. He could give you like the really good version. But basically, the Romans would do this. So the Romans would come in, defeat the army of whatever people group they were trying to conquer, and then set up basically what I'm going to say is like a local proxy government from the people within the land. And then they would use that local government of rulers from within that people that they set up to basically manipulate what looked like loyalty to Rome and extort taxes and money and wealth from them. And they used those local governments to basically keep the people in line. So while the Romans exploited and manipulated the culture and the identity of the people that they had conquered from within, the Assyrians sought to rule by completely crushing any sense of culture or identity that the people had. They would defeat the people, and then they would deport them from the land that was their homeland, which I can't stress enough how big of a deal that was to them. So they would defeat them and take them out of their land, and then they would take another group of people that they had defeated somewhere else, and they would move them into the land of the people they had just taken out of, basically deporting both groups, flip-flopping them. This completely erases any sense of home or community or hope or nationhood. They sought to reduce them to being nothing but those who would serve Assyria. So when you think of this, so think of that happening to these Jews living in the north in Zebulun and Naphtali. And then what's going to come just a short while later when the whole kingdom falls. And then ultimately even Judah in the south falls to Babylon. And then think about fast forwarding like many, many, many years later to the events of the Holocaust. One can do nothing but stand in awe of God's hand in keeping this people of Israel as a group of people, as a nation that still exists today. It's amazing. 
So to say that what happened in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in the days of Isaiah was dark takes on a whole new meaning when you understand the extent and the depth of the darkness and its effects. Because of this, when the people of Isaiah's day heard what God had to say through Isaiah's prophecy next, it's either going to sound to them like a hope that is impossible, or because they are at the very bottom of the darkest pit, it's going to sound to them like the only thing they have to hold on to and sustain them in the midst of it. So, in the prophecy, after promising that on those who are living in the land of deep darkness, a light will dawn, he goes on to tell them what effect this light will have. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Can you imagine being a part of a nation of people who have internally been torn apart who are now suffering under the attack from an outside enemy that has set out to oppress and destroy them. And in the midst of the distress and the darkness and the gloom of it all, you hear a message of hope from the prophet of your God, which says, your nation is going to get bigger and you're going to experience joy that's going to increase. And this present situation you're in is going to turn to celebration and a bountiful harvest or a party like when you win a victory in battle, sitting in their seats and hearing that, what would you think? How would you feel? I mean, would I believe it? When I think of the times of trial and darkness in my own life, I know that choosing to put my hope and trust in the Lord is no easy task. And I think this is why God qualifies this promise by having Isaiah put it in the context of an impossible protection and rescue from outside oppression in their past. And that's the defeat of Midian, he references. You can find the full account of this deliverance in Judges chapter 7, but the short version is this. And I've got some bullet points that are going to follow me up on the screen. You ready? Here we go. God raises up an unlikely leader in the person of Gideon. The Israelites find themselves under the threat of attack from the numerous and powerful Midianites that border their land. As the invading armies of the Midianites lie encamped in a valley below Gideon and his people's land, God tells Gideon that he's going to hand victory over the Midianites to him in the most extraordinary way. And if Gideon and his people are willing to trust him, they will be able to beat the masses of the Midianites with only 300 men. While not without some struggle and assurance from God in the process, Gideon chooses to trust God. And he leads 300 men to the edge of the Midianite camp at night. And as God instructed them, they bring trumpets, torches, and clay pots. Trumpets 
torches, and clay pots. As the 300 men of Israel surround the vast encampment of the Midianites on all sides of the valley, Gideon instructs the troops on what God has said to do. He says this, Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch of the night, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. A pretty amazing reminder to the people living in that land of darkness of the miraculous rescue and victories that God has done. And notice in the story of Gideon and the Midianites, the connection to sudden light shining into darkness. There's a blasting sound of trumpets filling the valley, and the echo of the smashing clay parts ring, pots rings around them, followed by the sudden appearance of torches light flashing into the darkness. So when a victory like this can come in essence from trumpets and torches and clay pots, it doesn't make it sound so hard to believe in Isaiah's prophecy of hope when he says, as we read, that the tools of your oppressors, their yoke around your neck, their yoke that forces you which way to go, and their bar which crosses your shoulders and binds your arms, and their rod which strikes your back and keeps you into submission, will be shattered by the coming of the light. Not only this, but the tools of war, the blood-stained boots and protective garments of seasoned warriors will be of no use, so much so that they will no longer be kept and stored, ready for a fight to come, but they'll be burned and only good as fuel for your fires. You won't need them anymore. It's like Thanos in Infinity War, retiring his battle armor to hang in the garden because his best use for it now is as a scarecrow to keep his food safe. While that is not the picture of victory we're rooting for on the side of the Avengers story, it's a picture of the same finality God promises in Isaiah. And it's the same reason that nearly a thousand years later, the apostle Peter puts away his sword. For when Peter truly understands that the light has come, he knows that what's going to win the day now isn't his sword, but his love, which is rooted in and sustained by the light of Christ. In the final part of Isaiah's message, we leave the yuletide fire cheer of burning bloody warrior's boots and return to the part of this Christmas trumpeting passage which, you fear, which you're familiar with the most. 
This is where God reveals the source of this light that is going to end the gloom, oppression, evil, death, and darkness. And get ready for it. It's a baby. (laughs) Can you imagine hearing that in Isaiah's day? What's going to end the deep darkness and gloom and strife and oppression? A baby. Not a sword-wielding warrior king with the strength of Samson, the wisdom of Solomon, or the heart of David, but a baby. And yet, we need to remember trumpets, torches, clay pots. Light dispels darkness. And as God has proved to his people in the days of the Old Testament, and still to us facing our own trials and darkness and oppression today, he always has been and always will be enough. Therefore, my friends, we get to the very heart of the passage. God himself is going to come. God himself is going to enter the darkness, incarnating his true light and life into flesh as a baby. And Isaiah writes, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. And our very well-beings, he says, our provision, our families, our nation and all things will rest on his shoulders For this child and this son given is more than a mere man with the strength of Samson and the wisdom of Solomon and the heart of David. Isaiah gives this light-wielding, life-giving baby to come titles that only belong to Yahweh, the one true God himself, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles and names that no God-fearing Israelite would throw around lightly. We must note, these are the same people who consider the name of God to be so holy, so powerful, and so demanding of absolute honor and worship that they will only put it into writing in their scriptures as what we translate into English as Lord denoted in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, in the Bible. Because the Israelites believed that even just the Hebrew character letters of the name of God were too holy to even write. No Israelite calls a baby born to man mighty God without fully believing it and then bracing himself for some stones that are about to come flying. So, when we finally get to this promise and Isaiah's prophecy tells us what will result from this baby who will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then the words of the prophet seal our hope with the most powerful of statements. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He invokes the very name of God and proclaims to his people and to us here today that he will do this through his zeal, meaning the passion, the fervor, the desire, the energy, and the enthusiasm of Yahweh God Almighty. 
and that this will be accomplished. Dear friends, as we advent here together today, I pray you know in the deepest parts of your soul that this prophecy and truth means that your hope does not hinge on a chance or lie in a probability, but that your hope rests on a certainty. Because of that certainty, no matter the darkness you see around you, whether it's the threat of death, the brokenness of relationships, the loss of a job, the pain of grief, or the fear of anxiety, we can turn our sights to heaven and celebrate with full hearts and loudest praise the coming of the Christ child at Christmas. For death and darkness has been and forevermore will be defeated. And the light and the life that will be offered forevermore to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Amen? Amen. All right, so in closing... I have a few Advent resources that I just want to point you towards. Um, and you can dig deeper with these, and um, I'm going to post them in the Brookside Family Forum. And the, the very first one covers this passage we just went through, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And what it's going to be, you'll see it, it's a PDF of an old and beat up, very well-loved Advent reading meditation calendar that Brookside put out just a few years ago. Um, and if you start it now, we're on day eight, but that's okay. You can pick up where it is, or you can double up your reading and catch up. It'll be well worth your time. The second thing I'm going to put in there, our very own Amy Seifert just posted a really cool um, article on her blog about fun, meaningful, and simple ways that you can advent together with your family. I'm going to put that there. And I want to remind you guys, be here next week for Amy to tune in and hear how we can continue to Advent and point our hearts towards the Christmas season. And then finally, I'm going to post a link to a book called Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller. I started reading like the first chapter of it in prep for this, and I found that somebody had written like all these sermons we're about to preach like way better than I ever could. Short book, it'd be well worth your time. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, Thank you for your word, and thank you for the promise of hope. And God, thank you that as we celebrate and worship and close out our time together this morning, we do it with knowing that our hope rests on a certainty, that light has shined into darkness, and that that light gives life to men. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you humbled yourself to be the form of a baby and that you came into this world that we may have life and have it to the fullest. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, as we turn our hearts to the ladies, we think about not just wanting to conquer something as, uh, as simple as the daylight shortening, but wanting to conquer the ways that our hearts look for light and darkness, the way the depression and anxiety and, and the ways that worry and the ways that stress and the ways of wondering, how can all of this turn out right? How can it be in, in, in a world of, 
bondage happens and oppression happens and all the brokenness comes. Father, how can it be that this little baby in a manger would be your answer? And we ask, Father, that you give us understanding as we press further and further into this Advent into Christmas, that you would open our eyes to see what it is that this light is in front of us. It's not at the point of a gun, and it's not at the explosion of a bomb, and it's and it's not in a politician's speech, and it's not in all of the ways that our world creates power structures, but it is in not just this king, but his people, and, and, and his people amongst the nations who would carry this way of the king about them. Even in Gideon's day, they didn't strike swords. They just open clay pots so that their, their light appeared suddenly. Father, would you teach us how to be that light of the world? And that it wouldn't throw our world into panic, but instead would inspire hope and would and cause people everywhere to look and say, how do you live that way? Or how do you handle that? Or how do you be that way? Father, would you be teaching us to live the glory of the kingdom, that we would be that sudden light? Thank you. Amen. Right. Well, let's, uh, you can be seated real quick. Let's close up with, um, I've just got some sort of December announcements. I have, look at that, December, a, re, a remember to December. It's like a commercial. I'll talk in this voice from now. Um, coming up, this would be Wednesday, um, cookie exchange at Katie Thompson's house. Um, to know where, just go to the uh, info table. Yes, it's going to be very exciting. Uh, if you have any leftover cookies, this guy. Okay. Um, Coming up on December 22nd, we are going to have a congregational meeting. So we are, we're an elder-led church, however, we, uh, we vote together um, about things like our budget, and also we're going to be voting on some elders, excuse me, <coughs> a stupid cough will not leave. Okay, uh, if you are a member, we really would love for you to make a point to attend, it's our vote. If you're not a member, we... <laughs> We do not use membership here to decide spiritual aptitude. Are you a member? Well, you know, that's not how we be. We're family. We love one another. But as a, a legal entity, we, we vote. Um, and if you'd like to be a member of Brookside, today is uh, our membership meeting after church. We've asked you to RSVP. But even so, if you want to come, I'll save you a slice of pizza. And we're going to have our congregational meeting today after church at 1140. Right, Amy? Uh, I'm sorry, what time? Oh, not, yeah, not the congregational meeting. I'm sorry. The, uh, the membership class. I'm so sorry. Thank you. My brain thought the class. My mouth said the wrong thing. Happens. Um, and then let's see. Christmas Eve service. Very excited about this. We'll be together. 530 here. Please come. Please feel free to bring anybody. It's going to be a very sacred but also very accessible service. We're really excited about it. And then finally on 1229. This would be the Sunday after Christmas. Um, as a way of loving the university and not trying to drag them out in the middle of their Christmas break. We do not have service. And so um, gather together with friends, maybe your community groups. Maybe there's a church where you really have friends and you've been wanting to bless them by showing up and making them think for a glimmering moment that you're going to come there. Go there. But then don't come back. But uh, I'm actually excited. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to try to go to H2O Church. Brian Wiles is a good friend, so he's going to think that I'm switching churches, but I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. We're going to have uh, the, uh, the, the membership class right after at 1140. We're so excited to be in this with you. God bless you.